Let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Um, appreciate Kyle's prayer, uh, especially this Sunday. Um, it's a complicated text, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure what to think of his prayer that God would humble me um, through this. That's scary when somebody prays that for you, right? Okay. Well, here goes. Um, listen, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 14. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Let me pray for us. O Lord, heal us. Heal us by your word. Heal us by your word given to us through your spirit. Heal us by your word given to us through your spirit given to us in the name of Jesus. We pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, we've been spending a couple of weeks in the last couple of chapters of Zechariah. We've looked at this this repetitive chorus on that day, on that day, on that day, as the Lord looks ahead in another cycle of these typically prophetic visions, right, that 
that give us this picture of what the end time is going to look like when the Lord returns, when the Lord will be king over all the earth. And, and yet, we, we are encountered again with that, that harsh picture of, uh, of judgment, of what the Lord will do on that day. Um, when you look at the first two verses, there's some very disturbing stuff. We hear about how God will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. And you just hear about all of this destruction, and you ask, what is it that disturbs you about these verses? Is it the description of, of, of God's people's suffering? Is it the description of violence? Is it the description of houses being plundered? Is it the description of sexual violence? That alone would be enough to make us want to sort of turn away from Zechariah 14. But there's something else, something even more disturbing. What disturbs you about these verses? Is it the, the houses being plundered? Is it the sexual violence? Or is it the fact that the very nations who are abusing God's people are gathered there by God himself? Do you see that? Verse 2, God says, I will gather these invading nations, and they're going to surround Jerusalem and harm these people. What is going on here? The, the quick answer is that God does not offer us a sanitized religion. He doesn't offer us something safe, something fluffy and cushy that just makes us feel good. Now, without question, the Bible is full of indescribably beautiful truths that comfort us. And, and yet, we, we cannot, if we're going to be men and women and children who have integrity as disciples of Jesus, we can't just flip over to the other pages. We've got to look at, at these hard things in, in Scripture. So this is one of those painful passages. How can God be involved in the suffering of his people, right? I mean, that's the question. But, but we want to we look at the question from another angle, right? It's not simply that we're asking how can God be involved in the suffering of his people. Another way to look at it is to say, how can God not be involved in the suffering of his people? How can, how can he not be involved, right? How can a sovereign God not be sovereign? Either he is or he isn't. He's not a sort of sovereign God who has all the power to create everything and he keeps it going and he preserves it and so on, but he's powerless and impotent to do anything against evil. That's not God. We can't pick or choose what he's sovereign over. He's sovereign over everything. And, and yet, here is evil being inflicted on his people. This is a hard mystery. Hard. And the theologians who have gone before us, uh, who have thought through these things with excellent minds and godly hearts, uh, have, have put it this way sometimes. They say that God is sovereign, but he is not the source of sin. He's not the author of sin. And there's a mystery here. We are the sources of sin. You and I are the ones who brought brokenness into creation 
Um, listen to the Heidelberg Catechism going back to the 16th century, how our mothers and fathers have understood this truth and have lived out this truth. And they, they confess it like this, I have no doubt that God will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For he is able to do it, being almighty God, sovereign. He is able to do it, being almighty God, and willing, being a faithful father. Now, we can turn to creed after creed after creed, theological position after theological statement and, and hear about this, but, but ultimately, this is biblical. Ultimately, we see this in the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, who would stand in front of the nations who were gathered in Jerusalem that day and say, this Jesus delivered up according, listen, listen carefully, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So God clearly, was sovereignly using the suffering of Jesus and the evil being inflicted upon him, God's own son, right? His only begotten son. You think about how could God let evil befall his people? Well, this is his only begotten son, and God is allowing evil to befall him according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God in order to accomplish so much more. The suffering would not be in vain. The price that God the Father was asking the Son to pay would not be in vain. It would be worth what would be received in its place. So God used the suffering of Jesus to establish the church. The lesson here is that we can't rush to the resurrection. We can't simply just skip over the hard stuff to glory. We've got to go through crucifixion in order to get to resurrection. It's the prerequisite. You can't get a buy. You have to go through the class. You have to go through crucifixion in order to get to resurrection. And our lesson on a day like today, it's good to be reminded that our black brothers and sisters can affirm this so much better than generally white church communities can. They get it because they've experienced it and lived it. And their ancestors tell the story. Um, let me read to you out of uh, Heal Us, Emmanuel, the title of this, this book. You know, it comes from the song that we just learned. This is a compilation from a bunch of uh, PCA authors, pastors, uh, black and white, um, all coming together to talk about racial reconciliation in the church and and, and the PCA in particular, but the the broader church as well. And so uh, Stan Long is a black pastor from Baltimore, and this is what he writes about the the relationship between suffering and the existence of the church, okay? And he says the existence of the African-American church is a miracle. It's a miracle. Think about it. Europeans brought Africans to the shores of America through the horrific Middle Passage across the Atlantic. 
The middle passage was the second leg of a triangle journey that the ships would make from Europe, from England, from Portugal, down to the coast of Africa. They would bring their cargo to trade with the slave traders on the uh, western coast of Africa. And then they would load their ships with their, their human cargo for the second leg of the triangle, the middle leg, the middle passage. And then they would go over to the shores of North America where they would unload their human cargo and they would trade it for yet more profits that they would take back to you know, all places in, in Europe. So this middle passage was the one that was just unspeakably cruel. Why? Because you probably remember the illustrations for the slave ships, everybody crammed together and, you know, there's no no sanitation, there's just disease everywhere. And two million souls died. Two million souls perished uh, on that middle passage alone, just from the, the, the journey across the Atlantic. Two million people died. And furthermore, um, sociologists and people who have studied the phenomenon of slavery estimate that another 2 million uh, African people died related to slavery, related to the whole, you know, transit and so on. And I know there was cruelty on the continent of Africa, and there's cruelty on North America, and there's cruelty in the Middle Passage, but but so Stan Long is saying, look, the existence of the African-American church is a miracle because when you think about where they were coming from, and then they come to America, and he goes on and he says, we, his, his black ancestors, were oppressed through the institution of chattel slavery while the oppressors encouraged us to embrace some notion of their God. How asinine. How ridiculous. Do you get that? We're going to enslave you And then we're going to tell you to worship our white God. And Stan Long is saying, that's just crazy. These are the people who were beaten and dehumanized, considered three-fifths of a person by our government, and sold as property and inherited as property, and families were separated, and husbands and wives were separated, and parents and children were separated, And houses were plundered and women were raped. And do you hear the echo of Zechariah 14? Incredible violence done to these people. And then Stan Long continues. But how incredible the sovereign plan of God. As Joseph stated to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's quoting Genesis 50, verse 20. My ancestors had to forgive their oppressors, the very oppressors who had taught them a distorted, unbiblical view of Jesus. Yet somehow we learned enough to declare, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The existence of the African-American church is a miracle. So exposure, I'm going to make something really, really clear. Please don't misunderstand me on this point. Exposure to the gospel and the salvation of multitudes of Africans can absolutely in no way be used to justify the evil of slavery. ever be unclear on that. 
So while establishing that, it is still true that God was working in spite of the sin of slavery and in spite of the sin and the system of racism to save many, many people from Africa. That's why Pastor Long is quoting Genesis because of the similarity of Joseph's situation, whose brothers sold him into chattel slavery. He was imprisoned, feared for his life. He was mistreated and abused, and yet God was ordaining good and salvation in spite of it. And furthermore, Peter at Pentecost is pointing to Jesus, who's the true Joseph, right, who was the one who suffered brutally and horribly uh, at the hands of human evil in order to accomplish our salvation. Over and over again, we see this pattern of God sovereignly for, uh, in, his, in his foreknowledge and his purposes using human evil to accomplish salvation, in order to accomplish his good purposes and bringing blessing out of the curse. So we get troubled, right, by uh, a sovereign God who allows these things to happen. We don't like reading about, you know, uh, stuff like Zechariah 14. God comforts us through Jesus, who suffered more evil at the hands of human oppressors than any other human being ever did or ever will. And he blesses us and he comforts us by his promise that a day is coming when all of that evil will be accounted for. In verse 5 of our passage in Zechariah, we're reminded that the Lord, my God, will come. He will come and all his holy ones with him. In verse 9, we read that the Lord will be king over all the earth. He will be one and his name will be one. And all will recognize that he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. That day is coming. But we can't just do an end run around the crucifixion. We can't skip to the end. So it's been a year, right, since that awful Saturday in Charlottesville when racism reared its ugly head. It pulled back the veil and we saw it and we all went, oh my gosh, that's awful. In, in general, okay, in general, the white community was shocked and horrified. You know what the black community's reaction was? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's how it is. Because they know. And they've been living with this all their lives. Every day they experience it in, in major and minor ways. So it shocks us, but it doesn't shock the majority of the, the black community. What can we as the church do to help and to heal in, in times like this, when we're reminded of this? Martin Luther King Jr. Um, describes racism as a philosophy based on a contempt for life. It's the arrogant assertion that one race is the center of value and the object of devotion before which other races must kneel in submission. It's systemic, right? It's broad. And it's where one race is the center of value and the object of devotion, and they're seeking to make other races kneel in submission. It's nothing new. We see it over and over again in our history textbooks, and we see it over and over again in cycles of human oppression. We see it in North America, particularly between you know, the white and the black communities, uh, but we can go and we can go across the world, and you can see how Japanese people were oppressing Chinese people uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And you can see how German people were oppressing Jewish people 
And you can see how Hutu people in our century were, uh, in the late 20th century, were oppressing the Tutsi people. You can see how Croatian people were oppressing Serbian people and vice versa. And it just goes on and on and on, where one race, one group is trying to assert itself as the center of value and the object of devotion before which other races must kneel in submission. So our struggle and the world's struggle and humanity's struggle is basically a struggle about who's in charge. It's about kingship. It's about who gets to call the shots, who's on top, which group gets to be the center of value and the object of devotion. That's what our human struggle's about. And the place to start in the battle against racism is to recognize its source. Where does that come from? Where does that desire to be the center of value and the object of devotion in the eyes of others come from? comes from right here. And it comes from right here. There's not a person in this room who's immune to this. We desperately want to be the center of value and the object of devotion. That's what we want. And that's what's responsible for all of our fights and all of our conflicts and all of the brokenness around us and in us in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our battles with our kids, battles with our parents, battles with coworkers, everything is about trying to be the center of value and the object of devotion. And racism is just that on a global scale, on a, on a, on a community-wide scale. Uh, Dr. Carl Ellis, uh, he's the Art, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary professor of theology and culture, uh, did a, a video about racism's root, and he calls it the root of racism is creaturism. Uh, Dr. Ellis was saying that basically when Adam and Eve decided, no thanks God, I know you're our creator, and I, I recognize we're your creation, but we think we can do life better than you, and that was when creation, when the creature turned its back on its creator and said, no thank you, I can be the arbiter of what's true and what's real, I can define good and evil without help from the creator. It's creaturism which basically has its manifestation, according to Dr. Ellis, in all other isms. Meism, me first, racism, tribalism, sexism, classism, all these, all these isms that Ferris Bueller warned us against. Anyway, so into our me-centric uh, creaturism, you know, the gospel comes. And all the time we're trying to exalt ourselves over others who are not like us. We're trying to be kings and queens. We're trying to rule. We're trying to be the center of value and the object of devotion. God says, no, 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 no. I am the king. I am the king. I am king of kings and lord of lords. And so in verse 9, that's why we rejoice to know that the day is coming when the world will recognize that the Lord is king over all the earth. The Lord will be one and his name one. It's just... Over and over again, the Bible telling us, and we look forward to Revelation 11 coming true, where the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and the anthems of heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and all the world will finally be recalibrated to recognize there is only one king. And we can stop trying to be kings and queens. And we can stop 
trying to have people recognize us as the object of their devotion. We can stop trying to be the center of value. We can recognize God establishes values. God is the object of our devotion worldwide, globally. So the world only works when we acknowledge one king, the true king, and we live our lives consistently with his kingdom. And so that's what the gospel is about. It's calling us to worship the king. It's calling us to uh, repent of our meism or our creaturism or trying to be king and queen. We have to say no to that, turn from that. The gospel gives us, shows us the way to do that because if Jesus was an ordinary human, you know, um, sinful king instead of the divine human king of kings, if he was just an ordinary king, guess how the gospels would, would have ended? He would have done exactly what the disciples anticipated and what they expected, which is to vanquish Rome and sit on the emperor's throne himself. All four gospels would have ended differently. It would have ended with his coronation in Rome, not his crucifixion in Jerusalem, if he was an ordinary king, if he was playing by the rules of creaturism, if he was in it for himself. But he wasn't. He wasn't. Jesus did not come to reinforce our sinful creaturism. He came to save us and to forgive us and to change us, and he gave his life for us And he did not use his power to abuse his enemies. He gave up his power to save his enemies. That's what he was doing on the cross. He gave himself on the cross to forgive our sins, that anyone who trusts in Jesus as our sin substitute, Jesus was paying my price on that cross. And when we recognize that's what he was doing, that he was forfeiting himself in order to lift me up, then I understand what salvation is. Then I understand who Jesus the Savior is. He loved us who hated him. And he offers life and healing to all who trust in him. Jesus didn't use his power to abuse his enemies. He gave up his power to save his enemies. So what does racism do? Racism uses power and privilege to exploit others, to abuse others, to get advantage over others, to, to, to profit off of our privilege. That's what racism does. But Jesus doesn't do that. He uses his power to bless us. So we've got to give thanks to the Lord who uses his power to serve and to save instead of asserting and dominating. So the black church can teach us a lot about the true Jesus who came to serve and to suffer and to show us God's love. You know, the, the, the white community in, under slavery was giving the black community this distorted view of Jesus, a Jesus who, you know, would use his power to assert and to dominate. We're Christians and we're in charge and we're going to put you in your place and you're going to recognize our values. That's not Jesus. That's not this king. That's not the crucified one. So on that day... As we're told again and again in, in Zechariah, on that day the Lord will, will be one and his name one. And the truth is that the four Gospels don't, uh, so to be more clear, no, they don't end in Rome with Jesus' coronation, but neither do they end with Jesus' crucifixion. How do they end? They do end in Jerusalem, but not with his crucifixion. With his resurrection, with his ascension even, which is really helpful for us to remember because in Zechariah 14, we're hearing about this day that 
where, where the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle, and on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, right? That's this geographical marker. Well, where was Jesus when he ascended? Where is the, the, the place, the geographical place of power for Jesus? It was actually this same Mount of Olives. In Acts, you know, we're told about the disciples staring up like chickens looking at the rain um, when Jesus ascends. And the angel comes along and he says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven from the mount called Olivet. So this is that place where we're reminded there's a link here, a link to understanding the nature of Christ's power that when he returns, when he comes back, there's all these beautiful promises uh, that we, we like to dwell on. Verse 8 talks about living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. Remember, I mean, that's not an accident. Remember Jesus saying, everyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And from out of him, from out of her will flow living water. You will be refreshed in the gospel. You will be refreshed by my love. You will have resources to bless others instead of curse them, even when they curse you. And we're told in verse 11 that Jerusalem will be inhabited. will never again be a decree of utter destruction. Who will inhabit Jerusalem? This, this beautiful new city, the new Jerusalem, we're told in Revelation 7 that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are going to be inhabiting this new Jerusalem. That's who's inhabiting the new Jerusalem. Not just the white Christians, but all Christians from all tribes and all languages and all nations are going to be around that throne. And Jerusalem will dwell in security in verse 11. I love Revelation 21 talking about the gates of the new city will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. This is this picture of blessing. This is this picture of a world free from conflict and free from riots and free from racial divisions and violence and and all of the things that plague us and all the things that make us cry out, how long? hope of the world is a king, the king of kings, the king for all kings, the hope of all people, acknowledging the same king, acknowledging that they are not kings, little kings, little meism kings and queens ourselves, uh, that we're acknowledging that we're all sons and daughters of the one true king of kings and acknowledging that because we're his sons and daughters that therefore we are brothers and sisters of the same race of redeemed saints and that we are acknowledging that we are a beloved community called to serve one another in the name of the king. But we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for that day to, to get in on this. It can happen now. We can get a taste of this, sometimes even gulp from this and be blessed by this. What do we need to do for that day to become a little bit more of a reality? Well, there's some really simple, practical steps. Reach out to those who are not like you. You and I do not have a monopoly on the lens of objectivity. We, we need one another. We need the church. We need the global church. We need the black church. We need the Hispanic church. We need the Chinese church. We need integrated churches, and we need multi-ethnic churches, and we need one another to see life as it's supposed to be lived. God does not have a white filter. God does not have a black filter. He doesn't have a Hispanic filter. He is the filter, and we can see his filter better through the lens of others. So we need one another, and we need to be reaching out to others who are not like us, We have a system here 
We have a, a, a white Christian system here, and we have to see it for what it is, and we have to know that there's power here, power that we presume on, power that we make assumptions on, that people come through those doors, and they should serve us and accommodate us and be like us. And, and are we using that power well? Are we using it to serve and to bless, or are we using it to insist that others serve us? That's One way is like Jesus, the other is not. So let's recognize the places where we're assuming that others should serve us, where we think our power and our privilege entitle us to be served. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's in the way that you relate to your spouse. Maybe it's in the way you relate to your kids. Maybe it's in the way that you relate to people at work. You're thinking about how people should react to you, what you're entitled to receive. And your sense of entitlement is based on a position of power that you are just assuming everybody's going to recognize and should recognize. Are you using that power to bless, or are we using it to curse? So let's listen, let's learn, let's grow, let's grow deeper in the gospel. Let's see the real Jesus, who didn't skip to the end. He didn't just go right to the resurrection. He didn't just go right to the ascension. He went the path of the cross. And he endured suffering, like our black brothers and sisters have endured so much of. And they see Jesus. They know his forgiveness, that blessed brothers and sisters in Charleston who lost nine of their brothers and sisters in that church from a white assassin who came into their Bible study, listened, was prayed for, was blessed, and then gunned them down. And all of those families in that church, some admitted they struggled, but the news reporters did not know what to do. The next day, the second day, when almost to a a soul, everyone in that church said, I forgive him. I forgive him. I forgive him. For he knows not what he does. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your forgiveness. Thank you that you use your power to forgive, to serve, and to save. That you don't use your power to exploit, to abuse, to marginalize. Lord, please lead us in repentance for the places where we do that unconsciously, subconsciously, and sometimes overtly. Lord, make us more like Jesus. Give us more of his spirit. Help us to drink more and more from these waters of of eternal life, uh, Lord, that you would flow out of us, that we would serve and love as you did, and that we would bless those who are our neighbors, whatever their skin color is, and that our church would lead in our community to show what forgiveness looks like and reconciliation and peace and flourishing. Lord, would you bless those who are here who are maybe starting to connect the dots with what is the gospel? What did Jesus do on that cross? And how did he take away my sins? Lord, lead them to salvation. Maybe it's today. Help them to trust in you. Lord, for the rest of us who, who, who confess Jesus and who trust that he has taken our sins away, Lord, would you grow us? Just make us more like him. Help us love better, we pray in Jesus' name.